or in this part of, of 1 Samuel? Who can quickly give me a summary of what's going on? I know you know the answer. You're just like, <laughs> wanting to spit it out. What's happening, Sharon? Uh, David has been going out and fighting against the Philistines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> During this time, he had protected uh, Abigail's husband, I can't pronounce her husband's name. Saul, 
who was a head above everybody else. He was tall and good looking and had all of the things that you would look for if you were just looking at the outward appearance. The external attributes. That's right, looking at the external attributes. Now, my boss at work, we occasionally um, he will ask me who I think is going to win the next presidential election. Right? And he is convinced that the most handsome person uh, or beautiful person will win. Because today, in the world that we live in, it's all about to look good. Right? I've heard that. Yeah. For the tallest. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, so height, stature has something to do with it. You know, comeliness or, or the appearance to look good. Now, I'm looking at the trial going on of, of uh, Mr. Edwards and thinking, you know, he's a good-looking guy. He was, he was actually a serious contender. Um, but boy, his heart was not right. Um, and yet people don't find that out till after the fact. Right? So that's kind of what's going on here. I mean, we see modern-day analogs to what was going on in this time of uh, David and Samuel and, and Saul. And so we've been watching what happens when you get uh, a king like the nations around you, uh, as opposed to God's a person after God's heart. And we've been seeing what happened. Now, the first thing that happened when David responded <clears throat> to his anointing is he had an incredible passion for God's people and to deliver them from uh, the oppression of the Philistines. And the Philistines were trying to make slaves of the Hebrew children. So David said, this isn't right, you know, uh, we need to, to stop this. And he went up against Goliath. <clears throat> From that time in his youth, he was a young man at that point, to the point where we're at now, several years have elapsed. And we're going to see several more years elapse um, as David goes through this formation. And we see that uh, we we're given a specific consistent theme through 24, 25, and 26. And in 24, uh, you recall, uh, David was uh, on the run, and is this a little bit easier to see than the satellite images, which are washed out? It's good. Is it, is it okay? Um, David was down here uh, along this ridge, uh, going towards... Uh, a break point here at the end of this ridge so that he could get to the strongholds of Engedi. And uh, Saul was on the other side of the ridge. And David makes it to Engedi uh, because God intervenes. Right? God actually brought the Philistines against Saul's hometown up here. And Saul said, well, i got to take the army back and we've got to defend the town. And, and so David escaped and he came to Engedi. While he was at Engedi, hiding out, Saul came back with 3,000 of his best men to take David out. And while uh, the men were in, in this, uh, this valley of Engedi here, in the surrounding hills, Saul needed to take care of some business. So he went into a cave uh, and set his robe aside so that he wouldn't soil it. And in that moment, it's time you find out David's in the cave with his men. And, uh, and the men are saying, see, God just delivered him into your hand, right? He's, uh, he's exposed his back to you. He's vulnerable. Let's kill him. And David sneaks up and he cuts off a corner 
of the road. And what was significant about cutting off the corner of the road? It was rebellion. He was actually uh, demonstrating that he was taking the kingdom from Saul. And he immediately was convicted of that and, uh, and felt guilty and goes out of the cave and confronts Saul and says, uh, repents of that, basically. And he says, you know, it wasn't right. What I did was wrong. Uh, but I want you to know I'm not here to cause you harm. And here's the proof. I'm, I, you know, even though this rebellion was in my heart, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm putting myself in that situation. He says, you know, I was totally wrong. It's wrong for me to go against the Lord's anointed. Um, I'm not going to take your kingdom by force. And even though we don't read it in the text, that he returns that corner of the road, um, there's every reason to believe that he does. And you find that out in chapter 26, uh, where he takes a spear, which has a similar significance. And a water jet. And a spear, if you recall, um, Saul, when he was in his kingly robe, sitting under the tamarisk tree, having all the young virgins feed him pomegranates, um, had his spear, because that was a sign of his authority as king. And that would be something that uh, one of the Gentile kings around would have done. They would have had their military might right there around them. Would have had their armor, they would have had their spear, they would have had their armies arrayed around them uh, to protect them, rather than them protecting the people. And that's exactly what you, you find out about Saul. And David says, this is wrong with me to do this. So that's what you see happening in chapter 24. We get to chapter 25, and there's this little footnote. And we glossed over it last week. It said, then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered, gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. <coughs> so... Why do I say that that's a little footnote? One, it's an editorial comment. Um, so you, you see that the narrator here throws this in, and oh, by the way, Samuel died, and all Israel. <laughs> the book is called Samuel. It okay? is. And now Samuel is dead. Yes. <laughs> and really, the book should be about David, probably. Because then priests in their second Samuel, too, and yeah, and you wonder, what's, what's Second Samuel got to do? I mean, you got Nathan and Gad there. Why didn't they call it Gad? That would be an interesting name for a book in the Bible. Um, so, you, you're right. I mean, one, Samuel, even though he's a major player in the beginning, seems to be an inconsequential player in this story at this point in time. Um, and you need to ask the question, well, why is that? What, what do you see happen? and the way that God uh, is administering his kingdom among his people. You're seeing a transition from a prophet to a king. And you're going to see a consistent theme here. Actually, you're going to see a, a king emerge um, who is both uh, a priest and a prophet. And we're going to read about that and, and see that fully formed in Revelation and Hebrew. Um, and what we're seeing now is part of that larger theme of the Bible of how God uh, interacts with his people on a day-to-day -day basis. Because this is something that you know we all 
ask this question. How do I know what God's will is? What is he saying to me right now? I mean, it's interesting that we've got all this history and stuff, but what, you know, tomorrow I'm going to work, this afternoon we're, we've got a business meeting, what's God doing right now? I want to know what he's saying. And what you see is a transition from where God is, is more transcendent in his presentation to his people through the prophet and the prophetic voice to a more uh, feet-on-the-ground uh, leadership of being present among his people. And so there's a larger theme, and I just thought I'd point that out, because we're going to actually move towards that uh, once we see the complete uh, fall of, of Saul, King Saul, and the rise of King David, and where he's actually crowned, uh, to the point of God making another prophetic utterance um, to David through prophet uh, about that future king. And so... We're at a march trying to help us understand what that future king will look like. And we see that through the transformation of the life of David. Now one of the things I wanted to point out is that uh, uh, as David's going through this transformation, um, is he changing? I see, uh, not sure, I see shaking. <laughs> I don't see any, no, he's not changing. When I asked that, what kind of change did you think about? Well, he's, he's learning more of God's will and how to function within that. So there's an internal change. Oh, definitely. Just well, he, he he's he's just about to receive a pretty tremendous lesson from Abigail here. He, he is. Yeah, he's going to get set right. And uh, and I the reason I bring this up is because oftentimes uh, we think of this transformation as being physically evident, but there was no physical evidence of the transformation in David. There was evidence that we see in his behavior as a result of the change in his heart as he comes to understand God more, more perfectly and God's will and God's voice. And we see him behave differently, but the way that God made him to function, um, he's still that way. He was that way when he was a ruddy kid that was a shepherd boy. He was that way when he went up against Goliath. Now he grew in stature, just as Samuel grew, so he grew up to the you know full uh, full manhood. But uh, if you were sitting, if you were a friend of David's and you were watching him, he would look, you know, and this is a, a phenomenon of how we live. He would look the same to you today as he did yesterday. You wouldn't see a physical change in him, and yet there's a very profound change that's going on on the inside, and that's what we're looking at. We're looking at how this transformation does not necessarily mean that he is transported into a different physical environment or different, uh, you know, he doesn't grow into a huge giant or anything like that. Um, it's actually more subtle. And, uh, and it takes a long time. I think there's a couple of really important takeaways that we've touched uh, on here in the last few minutes of this review. Um, first of all, um, the the wife, um, ah, yeah. well, Abigail, mm -hmm. um, she really gives us, I believe, an example of an intercessor. Yes. Um, and 
And so I think we need to learn from that. <laughs> you know, and, and, and a lot of us, our ministry is, in fact, interceding for, for others. You know? Right. So and that's one thing. I, I want to get touched on that before we leave. Yeah. And then yep. two is David, you're talking about um, this whole thing of uh, a process and, and character development. I really believe that if the Lord is going to use us, me, mm-hmm. you, um, that he takes us through a process of, if you will, training. <laughs> right. You know, where you work out all that stuff that's in your heart. You might have been willing to follow him. You might have been willing to go after Goliath. But maybe there's something else in your heart that needs fine-tuning. Right. And I think... And I think we're all there. We, we, we do. We all need to be getting better. And, and, uh, and that's actually one of the... When I get to the later questions that I would normally ask, that's one of the questions that I ask is... is uh, let's see if I can find it here. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to quickly find it. So... Um, the question is how how come how, how can we finish well regardless of how we start in other words we read about a whole bunch of people in the Bible that don't finish well and then we read about a few that do finish well like for example when you go through the kings um, how many good kings were there in the northern kingdom so the northern kingdom was formed Um, when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, ignored good counsel from godly men and said, I'm going to raise taxes and and conscript more labor to build this kingdom. And uh, a guy by the name of Jeroboam, who was an upstart, uh, disagreed and formed a northern kingdom. Interestingly, the northern kingdom was the majority in Israel. It was uh, ten tribes, nine tribes. And what remained in the southern kingdom of Judah was two tribes, Simeon and Judah. Simeon got absorbed. And so, uh, how many good kings do we have in the northern kingdom? Four, four or five. Four or five? Or is it none? None. None. Zero. Zero good kings in the northern kingdom. So that means a lot of these guys started out well and didn't finish well. What do you think God cares about when I read through the kings and, uh, and I read uh, the assessment of someone's life and it says, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? So... And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> he did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? And I'm sitting here looking at that, and I'm thinking, okay, what is it that God cares about? He cares about how you're living today and how you're going to live tomorrow, how you finish. A lot of us come from places where we don't start so well. And then uh, God intervenes, he intercedes in our life, and we get really excited. And for a very short period of time, people, you know, they jump into service in the church. They start reading their Bible voraciously and trying to learn as much as they can. Look at that person 25 years down the road. 
see where they're at. That's what's going on with David. We're seeing what he looks like 20 years down the road. And what it looks like when you have a heart after God. That when you fall, you get up. When you uh, make a mistake, you are teachable and can be corrected. Right? And so this is uh, an important question that we need to ask. One of the takeaways we should be taking away here is, how is this going to help me finish well? How is what I'm learning changing my heart? And that's when we look at what's going on in the formation of David. First, he learned that he had no business usurping God and his plan by taking out Saul's kingdom by force, right? By stabbing him in the back, cutting off the corner of the robe, David had no business there. He realized that he needed to wait on God's time. And, and Saul realized that too, right? And, uh, and now we get to this story about Nabal, which means fool. <laughs> That's the, the name actually means fool or foolish or... There are a number of different translations that you could put on that, but that's the most common one, is fool. And, and uh, his wife, Abigail, let's go ahead and read the whole story. Because uh, there's a lot of questions in here that I'm sure you're going to ask. Now there was a man in Ma'on whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was a Calebite. So who's a Calebite? The son of Caleb. Yep, the son of Caleb. Yeah. And David, uh, and we, we know Caleb is the guy that you know said, I don't care if there are giants in the land, let's go get them. You know, uh, he was, had a lot of zeal. Interestingly, his heritage was not that pure, and yet he ends up being one of the, the two that God says, yeah, you can live and go into the land. Um, and David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and visit Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. So... In Australia, he'd say, good on you, Mike. <laughs> says, now I have heard that you have shears. Now uh, now your shepherds have been with us, and uh, we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. So he's not asking for everything. He's saying, you know what you got on hand. Then, uh, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servant and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? Now, that's really quite a slam. He's basically saying, you know, I don't, you know, who's your father, who's your mother, um, and he's making a disparaging comment. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Again, this is dressed up a little bit, but he basically calls his parents' names. Uh, so David's young man retraced their way and went back, and then they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, each of you, gird on his sword. <clears throat> so each man put on his sword. 
and David also put on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. So, what's happening with David here? Yeah, he's he's mad. And he's going to exact a price. You know, basically what he said is, we protected your guys, and we did this out of the kindness of our heart. And the evidence is that, you know, you're continuing to get rich and nothing's spoiled. And all we're asking for is a little, you know, meat off your table. And uh, and you just told me that my parents are, are uh, of a, a not-so-great lineage. And uh, and so he's going to chop them up. And three times in this passage, <clears throat> you see the word sword. Anytime something's repeated like that, you need to pay attention. What's going on in David's heart? He's got a sword. He's going to... He's going to clear this problem up with him and his 400 men. It's David's deal. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Uh, Again, a nice way of talking about the insult that was given. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us by... uh, both night and day, and all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now, therefore, no one considered what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. <clears throat> I mean, that's a pretty strong testimony against Nabal, that his people won't even go and talk to him directly. Um, rather, they go through his wife, um, who is more understanding. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now, I want to help paint the picture here. She takes uh, steak dinner. She takes Fig Newtons for dessert. She takes wine to help these guys get, you know, enjoy the moment. And she puts it on donkeys and sends it before her. Who do you know that did something similar to that? Jacob. Jacob. Right. If you want to, if you want to make a, a negotiation with somebody. You honor them first, right? And you um, give them without regard for cost to yourself um, of your best. And that's what Abigail does. She's a pretty shrewd lady. She knows how things work, and she sends out um, the, the donkeys in front of her, and then she comes on a donkey. Now, David said... Um, Abigail, he meets Abigail and says, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned to me evil for good. Now, how often does that happen to you? Where you've given your best effort uh, unselfishly, and someone returns evil for your good. Has that ever happened to anybody in here? Somebody being a parent. Pardon? 
being a parent. <laughs> How often do I, I cop an attitude? It's like, you don't know what I've done for you, kid. I clothed you, I housed you, I gave you Fig Newtons and steak dinner, and you dissed me. Not only that, but you called my mom and my dad disparaging comments. Right? Um, it, that's what's happening here. He's uh, experiencing where he has not done anything wrong. He's been operating according to uh, the moral compass that God has given him and making good choices. And all of a sudden, he gets back evil for good. And uh, we see this all the time. Yes. Well, okay, I take issue with this comment, though. <laughs> okay, was it tradition then to sort of support the local warrior who's kind of hanging out, hiding? Yes, actually it was. Okay. It so was, so traditionally they he had was a, breaking some tradition. Right. But, I, okay, so it talks in the New Testament about this, you know, where we're, we're really supposed to return good for evil. Right. Um, and and so... I, I, would, I would take that one step further. We're supposed to give good no matter what. No matter what comes back. The motive shouldn't be what comes back. But go on. Well, in, in any case, it, it just doesn't seem to me like it would have been worth it to go and wipe him out or whatever, take all his, you know, what he was kind of going for, it seems mm-hmm. like. Uh, and he was mad, okay. But, but what was he entitled to? You know, a tribute? 10%? I don't know. Um, Sean? Well, being a Calebite, they were of the same tribe, yes, David and this man. Uh, yes. And actually, this man yes. is not living, <laughs> this man is not living in the territory of Judah. He's a usurper of the area. Yes. So David would have been there in protecting him, protecting his tribesmen and we, in what he's doing. And we actually see that when he marries Abigail. After Nabal dies, we're going to get through the story, Nabal dies, David learns an incredible lesson, um, and then he takes Abigail as his wife. It happens to be his second wife, which is also one of the best of Why did he do that? He did that because they were related, and he was a, a kinsman redeemer. And he was honoring a leverate marriage agreement, so the traditions of the time were very strong and binding. And that's why when uh, David's firstborn son, Amnon, I'm going to jump way ahead here in the story. David's firstborn son, Amnon, gets killed by Absalom, right? Absalom was not the next in line. The son of Abigail, Chilean, Chilean, I'll have to look it up. K-I-L-V-A-D-E-D-A-D. Yeah, so Chilean, was uh, the second in line to the throne, but he couldn't be the king because he was a son of a leveret marriage, which meant that he was um, born to refresh the house of Nabal, not to be a, a fulfillment in David's line. And so you have a lot of tradition here behind the scenes that you, you don't, it isn't always apparent. And thank you for bringing that up, um, is that... Indeed, David had a lot more going on here in a, a complaint against this guy than is apparent. But even if all he had was that the guy by uh, 
by an oath of hospitality owed him at least, you know, taking care of him, um, especially in light of that he did good for him. If that was the only reason, um, David has a very interesting response. Right? I mean, is there ever a reason that David should go against this guy with arms? Right, I think that's what you're saying. So, doesn't that seem like an over response? Um, how does the world work? If if this was a story today, how how would you expect this to play out today? Uh, I don't know. Just I was trying to think of a way to translate the insult into something we could appreciate. Mm -hmm. David has done the equivalent of stopping to help somebody with their flat tire. And, well, he's changing the tire while the stolen his car. Yes. That's, that's a very good example. Not only that, but as the ball drives off in David's car, he rolls down the window and he yells out, and, you know, your mother was a hamster and your father smells a elderberry. So, it's, it's a very significant slight. But how often do we get very significant slights? And is that a reason three times it says, take your sword, man. You know, we're going to go uh, not leave anybody alive. Well, when Nabal mentions that there's a lot of young men rebelling against their master, who do you think he's referring to there? He's speaking of David as that young man rebelling with yeah. who he called the master. So, uh, well, what are the choices? Saul. Saul's his master. And, and the trouble there is, is the whole idea of the Benjamin tribe and what he's already done in, in attacking the priesthood, what he's done in already attacking Judah. And you see that even with his son Absalom, that Absalom rejects being of Judah. He wants to be the Benjamin, right. you know, and take over. So in this, you have Nabal not living in Judah, clearly backing the Benjamites. And really, he's sliding them over the fact that you guys should just extend your necks out and let Saul cut it off right. if you were proper. Right. Which is a pretty low blow. And, and uh, so you, you see there's a significant reason for David to be offended. Absolutely. The, the question is, and we read this today with our eyes on this side of the cross, and we say, well, man, that is an over-response to kill somebody, regardless of, you know, the legitimate reason that he had. It may have been a really good legitimate reason. But still, to take arms and wipe out him and his family and all of his servants seems to be an over-response today. Because why do we think that's an over-response? Because we've come to understand the mercy of God uh, through Christ, and we recognize that he died for his enemies. He died for us when we were in rebellion against him. When we were returning evil for good and uh, using the Lord's name in vain. And what it, you know, using the Lord's name in vain is not just a, a trite statement. It's actually to empty God of all value. And look at what our society is doing today. It is completely removing from God everything that is who he is. Such that if you use the word at all, it's an empty word. It doesn't mean anything. And uh, so that's who we were. 
And we've come to understand that Christ died for us when we were his enemy. We were the ones that put him on the cross. That was a big discussion a few years back. Who killed Jesus? The Romans? The Jewish leadership? And, uh, and this came about because of uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. And uh, the answer is all of us. We all <laughs> And today we have a transformed view on that. It's like, well, I can't see a good reason to strap on my sword. And I happen to have one that came from France. It's pretty cool. Yeah, but you know, to, to come and wave the sword, even in a threatening way. I said, well, I didn't really intend to stab you. you know? <laughs> and you hear that kind of stuff today, too. It's a totally inappropriate response. Fred Meyer. Yeah. So, yeah, yes. Fred Meyer. Yeah, so they don't let me in Fred Meyer anymore. <laughs> but that's, and, and I think that we're intended to see the irony of this. The, the narrator is sharing this this progression through the story of the formation of David so that we see this as ironic, right? And that this woman comes to him in the classic way of making parlay and, and making peace, and she actually does what David said. What did David say when he sent his men to Nabal? He said, good on you, mate, right? He said, blessings, shalom. And yet, when he got back a negative response, he says, where's my sword? So she actually behaves in the way that David said, was talking. And she sends the best to David and his men. And so as we read through here, um, David says, you know, I'm not going to leave any male, I'm in verse 22, uh, May God do so to the enemies of David and more also. By morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. So he's going to take that his whole, his whole troop. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. So she immediately goes into a position where she fully exposes her vulnerability. She's a woman to begin with and then she bows down and basically offers her life is what she's doing. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. In other words, if you've got a vengeance claim, take it out on me. Right? And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. So she is very careful in how she even speaks to him. She says, please, uh, may, I, may I speak to you? If you say no, I'll shut up. And, uh, and so David says, well, speak on. Uh, now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord, uh, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Oh, I jumped. I jumped a verse. <laughs> Sorry. Let me back up to twenty-five because that's important. Um, Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man. Another translation for Nabal. Um, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. 
But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and the evil will not be found, and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from a hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not uh, cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So what is this incredible, powerful speech that Abigail's giving? What is she saying? What's the gist of it? Reminding him of the prophecy. He's going to be king and God's... She quotes prophecy. Right? So she knows who David is. And his mother was not... Well, everyone's saying David killed his, you know, tens of thousands. Everybody knew about David. I knew God was with him. Not only that, but if you look at where um, uh, David was from, he's from Judah, and he's not too far forth of uh, Hebron, too far north. Uh, Let me see here. So where David was from was from up here in Bethlehem, and uh, he grew up ranging this country. So here's Hebron. And uh, here's Maon. And you can see, he, he would have probably been known, and Jesse would have been known, because Jesse was a man of, of uh, means as well. Um, so, sure enough, she knows David, she knows about his anointing as king, and she restates the prophetic utterance. What else does she do? She kind of claims that her showing up at the time is God's intervention to stop him from shedding blood. That's right. So she throws herself on the ground in front of him and says, God is restraining you from shedding blood. He's already intervened. And I am the evidence of that. Whether the actual means or uh, whatever, God has restrained you to this moment um, so that you could learn this lesson. So that's another important thing. God was working throughout this whole, this whole process. He was intervening long before Abigail showed up in front of David, right? He was intervening in the hearts of Nabal's men, in the whole formation of Abigail, and who she was as a person, that she would be willing to do this, is a result of years of character development, right? God was intervening in David's life from time before he was born, and now had restrained him from shedding blood. So we see that. There was an intercession to cause him not to shed blood. Well, she's offering her life too, which is interesting. It's kind of going beyond being an intercessor. Because she says, um, she fell to the ground, on me alone, by the way. <laughs> right. 
you know, so she's saying, look, if you want to kill somebody, kill me. Literally. Right. And, and, and yet, you know, he was just meeting her. He was kind of on his way to do something else. Um, so she's, she's trying to stop him from going on, but she assumes that, that he's going to stop, too. It's, it's an interesting uh, exchange. Well, she does, but she doesn't. It is an interesting exchange because David could have disregarded Abigail and gone and, and killed the ball. He didn't even have to listen to her. That's right. He didn't have to stop. He didn't have to listen. Um, he could have exacted the vengeance. How we doing on time? Um, but he didn't do that. He stopped. He listened. He heard what Abigail had to say, and so and she does offer her life. Uh, for the folly of her husband. I'll yeah. ask you, I've been struggling, I've been kind of wrestling with this for a few minutes, I'm losing, but um, the fact that she does that, she also said later on, hey, I didn't meet your guys when they came to the bar. I didn't see them, I didn't have an opportunity to, you know, to right. respond to them, and yet, let all the blame be on me. Is that just a courageous act of saying, hey, I'll be the substitute? <coughs> another principle here saying, I share the blame. I, I do share in guilt here. Well, she's saying, I don't share the blame, but I'm willing to take the penalty. You've heard that from other people as we've gone through these kinds of accounts. Jonathan did that, right? Um, so he, he basically says, you know, it's not wrong what I did, but if, you know, you got to kill somebody, kill me. Um, we certainly see that in Jesus. And that he did not, uh, did not, he was not sinful himself, and yet took sin upon himself. Do you suppose that this, and her coming like this, also brings up to him how he felt when he was about to take Saul's life, and the men were after him to go ahead and take Saul's life? Yes. That this brought a remembrance there? Yes, mm -hmm. and that, that's, I think, why you see this castle in here. I mean, why do we have this story about Abigail? other than it's interesting to understand something of the history of David's family, because we find out that she becomes his second wife. Um, but you actually see this sandwiched in between uh, a story about David in rebellion, cutting off a corner of the road, and David uh, sneaking in and taking the spear, but with a completely different intent when he takes the spear than when he cut off the corner of the road. His heart was changed. And what this story here is telling us is about that change of heart that David's having. Do we know how much time has passed between 24 and 25? Um, actually, we know that it's a very uh, fairly short period of time. It was no more than a matter of a few months. So um, Saul got, uh, uh, he came after him with his Marines. Um, David uh, makes his statement about how he didn't, in, you know, intend Saul any harm. He said, why are you coming out after me? I'm like a flea on a dog, right? Uh, you got more important things to do. You're the king. Go do kingly things. And so Saul goes back, and then he finds out, uh, again, the, the, uh, the Ziphites. Um, so there's a, here we go, Ziph, uh, in between the Alon and Hebron. Um, these guys are very loyal to Saul, and they send messengers saying, hey, guess what, David's hanging out down here, and uh, he's down here again, and Saul then sends people to kill David again, so 
it, it wasn't a long period of time, but it was long enough for Saul to take his army um, and retreat from Engedi back up here and then come back down after David. Yes? You know, it seems sort of like uh, David reneged on an oath that he made to God because he got his middles. It seems like he reneged, he said, uh, may God deal with uh, may God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one man alive. So he's, he made an oath, it sounds like, to God, and he got his medals. He said, oh, I just kidding, I didn't <laughs> Well, is, is this an oath, um, or is it a, a rash statement? Um, an oath would be a promise to God, basically. Right, or, and, or and I don't see, yeah, I don't see this as a, as a commitment. But even if he had made an oath, which I don't see an oath here, but I see a rash statement, um, I think David would have recanted on his oath. Um, he would have recognized that, you know, what God is asking of me is different than what I offered to do for him. Um, and so I, I say that because this is, and we, we'll see this kind of, this is a good question, I think, because we'll see this as we move through. There are times when David changes his mind. God never changes his mind, but David changes his mind. And that's kind of what's happening here, is David's changing his mind. He's actually changing his heart. It seems to me like David, in his anger, temporarily forgot something that he really should have known. And Abigail reminded him of it. And when she threw it in his face, like, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really messing up here. Well, and that's exactly what happens. And that David hears what Abigail has to say, understands that that's the word of the Lord to him. And he, even though the word repent is not used here, that's exactly what occurs. Um, we read on, it says, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. He recognizes where this intervention comes from, that God is about working on him through another person. Interestingly, this is a lot of times how we uh, hear from God, is through a person whose walk with the Lord has been consistent for years and years and years, and they say, you know what I see there? I don't think that's right. Um, and so he recognizes, oh, this is from God. Um, and he says, and blessed me, and blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you would come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal um, until the morning light as much as one male. In other words, he was saying, you know, I was... I was bent on doing this. I was going to do it effectively, and it took God's intervention to stop me. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So, when it says that Nabal had this change of heart, that he became as a stone, 
What do you think that means? Pardon? Had a stroke? Had heart trouble? Is this a physical phenomena, or is this a, a like when God hardens a heart? His heart failed him. So, I mean, to, to have heard that somebody whom you had just insulted and whom you knew was perfectly capable of chopping you into small pieces. That you know, somebody here has just prevented them from doing that. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you, you hadn't even considered that this might happen. You were limping off, and now you've been spared it. I mean, at that point, I can see where somebody might absolutely, you know, kind of get weak in the knees and you know, be thinking, "Uh oh." Well, you, it would be easy to make a casual relationship that the cause of the ball's death was because um, Abigail told him what was going on. He realized his vulnerability. That would be one thing. But I think that um, there's also equally valid is that um, he uh, hardened his heart all the more against David and was absolutely certain that he was in the right and that he was not going to change he was making his final declaration against God, saying, you know, I could care less about David and Jesse and the, the prophecy uh, of God about this man. I'm rich. I'm famous. Uh, leave me alone. And, yeah, and it was Right. When, when it was a better time to right. tell him what she had done to go and save the entire household and yep. all of all of his men. And then, you know, he's thinking, and my wife did right. this? Right. <laughs> and, and in that moment, and he I had a choice. Yeah. He had a choice of repenting. He could have invited David and his men in at that point and said, you know, I am a fool. Let me make this right. But he doesn't. His heart is hardened. And guess what? Ten days later, he's no longer in this, on the scene. The Lord said, okay, you just made your, your final major decision against me. Um, your time is up. That's a very sobering statement, I believe. In either case, whether he got weak in the knees, um, recognizing the judgment of God, or whether he was in total rebellion against God at God's chosen one. Um, it's not a good place to be. It's not how you finish well. And uh, I hear lots of zippers, so that means we're done. Um, one of the things... So, pardon me. Did that not come out right? Oh, sorry. Um, I, I meant, you know, you got your Bible. Uh, okay, so let's go ahead and close the prayer. Um, you know, the, the end of the story is, is that David honors the leveret marriage. He's a man that honors God in all things uh, and is willing to change his mind. So let's take that lesson to heart. David? Yes. We need to pray for Eileen Q-Tub. She's running for the Senate seat. We need to get behind her and pray for her. Okay. Is that something that we can do uh, afterwards? Eileen? Okay. Because we, we would like to pray. Yeah, well...
we can do that afterwards. But I, yeah. I, I definitely need a prayer kit for this round. Yes, it's, it, and it's not just a single prayer. You need to be held up. All the time. Yes. So let, let's go ahead and close in prayer real quick because I've taken you longer today than You're fine. <laughs> I'm allowed. But Lord, we just thank you for this time together. We thank you for what we're seeing in the transformation of the heart of David, how you chose him uh, as he was and then um, transformed and built the character that you had already uh, put within him, Lord. And we know that you do the same thing for us, that you put us uh, where you desired in, in this world to be your ambassadors, uh, to take a stand for you, to offer our life for others in the various ways that we do that, whether it be through, uh, through uh, serving in government, um, whether it be through serving in the home. Uh, Lord, we know that this is the way that you've made us, and we desire to be transformed fully into the image of your Son. And uh, help us to, to truly respond in that way. Help us to take these lessons to heart. Lord, we lift to you this week before us and uh, the, the time and opportunity that we'll have uh, to share who you are and to grow and to be challenged. Uh, we know challenge is hard almost all the time, but we ask for the strength to go through whatever trials that you would put before us. Lord, we lift to you the message this morning that uh, Bob has prepared out of Ecclesiastes and uh, ask that you continue to speak to our heart through your word and through your servants, Lord, we just ask this in your name, ask for your protection, we ask for your provision, and we thank you so much for your service and loving care for us, Lord. We thank you for this, in the name of your Son, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.